might be able to appropriately use behavioral techniques and how we can collaborate with uh, BCBAs to best facilitate children's progress. And so I'd really like to concentrate our talk tonight on how we can foster these collaborations and better understand each other's areas of practice. Um, so to start off with, um, let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about exactly what um, Applied Behavioral Analysis, or ABA, is, um, especially uh, in regards to discrete trial training and how that might really differ from the use of other kinds of behavioral strategies, um, such as positive reinforcement, et cetera, um, and sort of how those things fit together. Sure, um, and, and you're right, Teresa. This is a, a very big topic, and it is often the elephant in the room. Um, so I do welcome the opportunity to talk about this. Um, let me give it just a little bit more background about my experience in this area uh, to provide some context. Um, okay. When working on my, my doctoral degree at the University of Washington, I was in the College of Education, um, special education in particular, and it's a very, very behaviorally based program. Um, so I had opportunity to um, be in the classroom with people who are now BCBAs. Um, that certification wasn't available at the time of their training, but they have um, obtained that certification now. And we really dove into a lot of the work by Skinner um, and kind of the, the fathers of behaviorism. Um, so I've had a lot of academic training, and then I've also been trained um, as a line therapist in an ABA program. Um, okay. So I have some of that practical exposure as well. And um, what I think is really important for us as OTs to understand is that um, the behavioral approaches and the behavioral theories um, have a lot of merit to them and oftentimes um, are things that we can observe in everyday life, but I think that we are not necessarily um, knowledgeable about when we are seeing those principles in practice, and so it, be, it remains a bit mysterious to us. I think as we can increase our understanding um, then we can uh, about what they are, then we can also increase our understanding about the the times that it may be appropriate or relevant for our clients. Um, so with that as kind of a starting place, um, applied behavior analysis overall is is considered the study and application of behavioral theory to socially important behaviors. Um, and so it's really the, a conceptual way of thinking about behaviors that people emit and how we can um, put some, some supports and strategies into place to perhaps change or support those behaviors. Um, I think that just as in OT, our terminology can be somewhat confusing. That's true of behavior analysis as well. Um, and I think a lot of times when we hear that term ABA, um, we're really thinking about um, a very specific type of behavioral strategy rather than the overall um, school of thought. And so that's something that we need to keep in mind as well. Um, when we, when, again, when we talk about ABA as an intervention approach, there's a range of behavioral strategies that fall under that. Um, and so we can talk about some of those different strategies. I think the, the big one um, that most of us actually think about when we hear the term ABA is actually the discrete trial training. 
um, which is a teaching approach that has many of the other behavioral strategies um, are used within that approach. And so we can talk a little bit about what discrete trial training is, um, and that will then help us to understand some of those other approaches as well. Okay, sounds good. Okay, so with discrete trial training, um, it's really the idea that um, providing an opportunity for someone to experience multiple repetitions of a task and, and attempts to learn a task um, and receiving very explicit feedback on whether or not they're, they're learning that task and demonstrating that task appropriately, um, how, how the supports around the person's performance can be used to modify their behavior or what they do. Um, so in, in a discrete trial, um, a, a, a child or a student would be given um, a cue or a, an opportunity to demonstrate a task and um, would receive immediate feedback about whether or not they were on track. And um, typically what's happening is, is kids are being taught to perform desired behaviors through these methods. And so they re receive a cue to demonstrate the, the behavior that the person wants to see, and then they would be rewarded um, for demonstrating that, that response or behavior. Um, if the response or behavior is not demonstrated, then the cue is repeated and the child gets assistance to demonstrate that behavior, and then they are immediately rewarded so that there is, um, the idea is that the reward um, is linked explicitly to the behavior in order to strengthen that behavior and, and increase the chances that it will occur more frequently in the future. Um, and so oftentimes these discrete trials are presented to the child um, for two to three hours, um, two to three hour long sessions. And within those sessions, um, they're broken down into short three to five minute periods where they're they're working on the task and receiving their rewards or their reinforcement, and then they take a break to have some free play time, and then they come back and do more, um, another three to five minute session of work, and then they have another break for some free play. Um, and so it's this back and forth work, take a break, work, take a break type of a scenario that happens for this two to three hour block of time. Um, and that's generally the way the discrete trials are presented. Um, now within that, um, there's a lot of other things that are going on, but overall there's more to applied behavior analysis than just the discrete trial. And I think that's something that not all OTs or not all consumers even are aware of. And so that term can be really misleading for us. And um, I think it's helpful to remember that it's much bigger than just um, discrete trial training. Okay. Um, what are some of those kinds of strategies? Um, that people might be um, might need to know about. Yeah, that's a great question, and I think some of these strategies are things actually that many OTs are already doing, but don't necessarily know that it's an ex a specific strategy. Um, and so it can be really instructive for us to look at the the um, the words that that behavior analysts use to talk about these things. Um, one of the big strategies within this is positive reinforcement. Um, and I think most of us have a general understanding of what that is, where it's the idea that somebody um, is rewarded for doing something that's desired. Um, so we think about the kiddo that we want to 
you know, have engaged for a longer period of time. And so we're working on building that duration of engagement. And as we, we see the child um, demonstrating that or being engaged longer today than they were yesterday, we give them praise or we give them um we applaud them or we do something else that we know they enjoy. And so in that way, we're trying to give them some kind of feedback that strengthens their engagement because that's the behavior that we've been working on. Um, so positive reinforcement is, is that, um, has that same essence to it, but it's very um, explicitly applied. Um, and, and in that, I mean that, um, the, even what is used as a reinforcer is something that has been um, examined to see whether or not it actually holds power for that particular child to serve as something that will reinforce the behavior. Um, I think a lot of times when kids are first being exposed to these strategies, the reinforcers tend to be edibles. So we'll see the goldfish cracker or the M&M or something like that being offered to the child as what we call a reinforcer. Um, but we all know that kids get tired of eating those treats or they get full and they're not hungry anymore. Um, and when that happens, then that reinforcer has lost its power. Um, and, and so within behavior analysis, um, there's a very strategic use of the reinforcers um, in order to not um, – have the child become satiated on the same thing, and um, there, and also to constantly be analyzing whether or not that item or that activity still holds reinforcing power for the child. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, you had there were a couple other things that you had listed. Oh, one of them um, was shaping, yeah. and shaping is a strategy where um, the child is is basically given this reinforcement um, each time they approximate the target behavior. I think for us, it's easy to think about when um, we see a speech pathologist working on helping the child learn to say a word, and they maybe start with that beginning sound of the word. Um, so, so for example, maybe they're saying the word ball, and the child starts with b, and then they get lots of, of praise or reinforcement. Um, and then they add on a little bit more to that. And so their, their uh, um, approximation of the behavior it gets a little bit bigger. So it's not just b, but it's ba. Right. And so this idea of shaping is that we're gradually reinforcing each successive approximation of the behavior so that eventually the whole behavior um, becomes demonstrated and becomes more fluent for the child. Yeah, I think we do a lot of that in SI um, to a little bit, you know, to some degree is, you know, you're trying to get a child to throw a beanbag into a target, and if they don't quite make it, we give them a lot of reinforcement. We may adapt the activity, so depending on the child's um, tolerance for success or non-success, and sort of use that sort of a more physical approach to getting them to do something. Absolutely. And again, I think we already do a lot of these um, things that we don't know that they have a specific name um, and we don't necessarily set out to, to, you know, with that mindset that, oh, I'm going to shape this beanbag throwing behavior. Um, it's, right. We use a different thinking process when we use our clinical reasoning and move into those strategies um, very seamlessly a lot of times, whereas in the behavior analysis world, they tend to be very... Um, systematic and very explicit 
in, in identifying what strategy they're using and being able to talk about it with a name. Um, a similar strategy, and another one that I think OTs do quite a lot, is called chaining. And that's um, where you're putting um, steps of a behavior together, or perhaps even multiple behaviors together, and working on building a chain of behaviors um, that gets longer and longer. So in OT, a lot of times we're doing um, like obstacle courses or something that, where there's a multi-step task. And um, we begin by helping the child with the first task and helping that task to become well-established. And then we add the second step of the task or a whole new task to that first one and build that chain um, with multiple attempts and multiple supports um, in order to, to build that chain over time and over repetition. Um, and, and again, it's a term that we just don't use very much, but it's a very, um, it's a meaningful term and I think something that, that we could begin using to help others understand what it is that we're doing or to help others see the parallels between what we're doing and what they're doing. And one other one that I thought was interesting is this idea of interruption. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we use that a lot um, to get kids to do problem solving and thinking about praxis and things like that. And I was wondering if you could speak just a little bit to that. Sure. Um, in the behavior analysis world, um, interruption is really um, something that that was developed primarily to get kids um, off of, I'm going to say, a behavior that's more an, of an undesired behavior. Mm -hmm. So it often is, is something that is used in the behavioral approach um, to try to divert or redirect somebody out of a repetitive or a stereotypical or even a self-injurious type of behavior. And so what, what typically happens in that is when, when the individuals engaging in one of those undesired behaviors, um, the response would be interrupted or redirected by giving a prompt to do something else, by commenting on something, um, perhaps removing a type of material or a tool that the person is using in that behavior um, in order to interrupt the, the, um, that behavior performance and cause the person to do something different. Okay. Excellent. Um, I think those are all really good um, strategies for therapists to, to know about because, as you mentioned, I think a lot of these we, we do sort of intuitively. Um, but I think having the language can be one step towards making connections with beha the behavioral members of a team, um, that if we can sort of frame some of what we're doing in a language that they understand, that may be one way that we can start um, getting some buy-in from them mm -hmm. uh, in terms of understanding what we're doing um, as well, which I think can be great. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to ask about was, um, you know, you've sort of been in there on the lines, um, and I know you've, you've talked to other therapists. Um, what kinds of things have you run into yourself or heard from other therapists um, as being some of their primary concerns with behavior management techniques? And do you have any ideas um, about how we might be able to kind of address some of those concerns uh, in order to kind of get better collaboration um, with uh, dis these disciplines? Mm 
That's a great question. Um, before I, I answer that one, I, I want to just comment on on um, something that you said and mm -hmm. around the, this issue of, of language and terminology. And I absolutely agree with you that the more we can understand the language that our behavioral colleagues are using um, and be able to recognize when those terms are actually, excuse me, are also relevant to what we are doing, um, I agree that that's one of the um, key steps in building better collaborative relationships with behavior analysts. Um, I think that in many situations, um, we feel like the behavior analysts perhaps don't have a lot of interest in what we're doing, um, or they don't give a lot of credence or, or see validity in what we are doing. Um, but when we can start using their language and, and engaging in conversation with them in terms that they understand, um, I think they're more likely to, to be responsive to us and to um, see us as um, members of the team that understand them, and then that might help um, to build some of those, those bridges to help create those better collaborative relationships. Um, so I definitely want to encourage people on, on the line to um, start paying more attention to the language. And if you don't understand the behavior analytic language, to, um, to start looking at it and, and seeing what you can learn about it. Um, so now to your question about um, what are some of the things that OTs have concerns about with these behavioral strategies. Um, gosh, you know, I think that oftentimes we believe that the philosophical basis of the strategies is so completely different from what we do um, that a lot of times um, it's hard for us to appreciate the possibility that there may be some value in them for our, the client that we're, we're working with. Um, and so I, I have heard from many people that, um, you know, just just that very first mention of a behavior analyst being on the team or that the child's receiving ABA, just that immediately sets up um, red flags and, and starts to erect that wall of division. Um, and so sometimes I think it's a mindset that we need to, to try to set any biases aside and consider each situation for each client um, individually. Um, because I, I do think that there are many times when the behavioral approaches can be very, very useful for certain clients. For other clients, perhaps not, um, but we don't always know from the beginning which is which. Um, so I think we need to really be cautious about building up that wall from the beginning without at least giving it a chance. Um, so the ph philosophical foundations, I think, are one, are one issue. Um, I think another one is the the perception that all behavior analysis analysis or all ABA is discrete trial training. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a misconception that we often hold as OTs. Um, and so remembering that the the behavior analysis approach um, should be including more things and have more um, types of interventions to offer. Um, and then I think there's the, the issues where we have um, a kiddo who's involved in a behavioral program um, separately from their OT program, and it seems that there's um, that the two approaches are not working well together. 
um, and it seems that um, perhaps the behavioral approach is interfering with what we want to do in OT, and that can really create a lot of tension. Um, so I think that's a, a place that um, a problem can can come up pretty frequently. And I actually have an example of that. Um, there was a, a little boy I was working with doing a lot of, of SI work, and we were spending a lot of time on swings and moving. And um, he was one of those kids where in the beginning, if I approached him and got too close to his own physical body bubble, um, he would retreat. And so just building um, that therapeutic relationship with him to allow me into proximity had taken a lot of time. And we'd gotten to a place where he was willing to allow me into his, his bubble and he was willing to allow me to have some physical contact with him. You know, I could hold his hand. I could um, give him some su physical supports with activities. And then he started his ABA program and immediately he was resistant to letting me touch his hands. Um, which just felt like, you know, months and months of work was lost. And so that was really, really difficult. Um, but I think that's something that we see happen. And I think that one of the things that um, we need to be well aware of is that the behavior analytic methods work through different mechanisms than what we do in OT, particularly when we're using an SI approach. And um, those behavioral mechanisms are really focused on things that are very external to the child. So it's primarily based on the task itself or the environment around the child. And when we're, when we're using an SI approach, you know, much of what we do is based on um, the types of activities the child is engaged in, but we're tapping into internal mechanisms. Um, and so the attempts at promoting change are, are tapping into these different things. And um, I think just like when kids um, go through their very, very early stages of sensory motor development during the first year of life, they will often spend more energy working in one area of development while the others kind of plateau. And then as they master that area they're working in, then they shift into a new one and that original area hits a plateau. I think we can see that sometimes happening when kids are involved in ABA programs and OT programs simultaneously, where there may be growth happening in one while things are a little slower in the other, and then we see it shift. Um, and so sometimes I think we need to have a lot of patience, um, but I think we also need to be much better at talking about what we're doing, why we're doing it, what the mechanism of change is that we're tapping into, and um, what sorts of outcomes we should be expecting um, and that we may not see big outcomes immediately, but what are the small things that are indicators that the child is making change in the direction that we intend and how can we help other people to begin to see those small changes that show that what we are doing in OT is having a difference for that child. I think um, I know for myself and, and what I hear from other therapists some of the big concerns that they tend to have, um, and I think you've sort of alluded to this, is we use a really different mechanism of change. And so, you know, we're, all, we're looking at the sensory inputs that a child needs, what their praxis concerns are. And when we run into a behavioral therapist who's working with the same child we are, who doesn't acknowledge 
those sensory issues um, and maybe using sensory strategies that we think are really important to prepare that child for work um, and is using them as a then a reinforcer after the fact or who is really pushing a child to learn something where we really feel like they don't have the praxis skill to do a mm-hmm. particular task um, and it's being treated as a willful behavior, that those kinds of things, those are, I think those are the situations where we feel the most frustrated um, mm-hmm. because we feel like the behavioral approaches aren't, acknowledging the underlying problem that's really going on with the child. Um, and I think that's that's one of the concerns I hear. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering, if, you know, what your sort of experience has been with that. Yeah, I, I certainly see that as well. Um, and, you know, this is a place where I feel like it, it can get really tricky to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um a, you know, a lot of times it's family choice, and they've they've chosen to pursue these ABA programs as well as OT intervention. Mm-hmm. And um, I think if we don't have good relationships with our families to talk through how some of these things can um, be somewhat um, undermining of one another. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's hard for parents to to make informed choices. And um, so I think that one of the first steps for us is is really building that relationship with the family and being able to provide them with information about the approaches that we're using and, again, the, the thinking that goes along with using those approaches. Um, you know, our clinical reasoning is so automatic for us as OTs, and mm-hmm. it can be very hard for us to articulate our thinking. Um, but if we can get better at doing that, I think that we can um, better explain things both to our families as well as um, the other uh, team members that the family is working with. Um, I often have to remind myself that um, BCBAs, in, in their training programs, there's no requirement for them to have um, training in child development or in any of the, the human body systems. So wow. they don't have any awareness of child development or of um, physiology. And, you know, all of our SI is built on that knowledge. Um, and so when I remember that they don't have that understanding at least it helps me realize that they don't have a basis for understanding why the praxis demands are so hard for the child. Wow. Um, They don't have any training in child development. I mean, they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be doing task analysis of developmentally appropriate activities and they don't get any training in that. Well, it's not, so it's different. It's not necessarily child development. Their, their background isn't in child development, but it certainly is in task analysis and in developmental progression of tasks. Wow. So, it, so it, it's a very, very different foundation of knowledge, which yeah. turns into very, very different application of knowledge. Um, so I think that when we realize what, what their training consists of and doesn't consist of, it helps us to understand um, it doesn't solve the problem, but it does give us understanding, and that's a good first step. Um, I have had really good success um, in 
slowly building relationships with BCBAs and starting to help them develop an understanding of human development and of the way physiology can drive behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not all based on external variables, um, but there are a number of internal variables that can drive behavior. Um, and at least helping them to begin to appreciate the way that we think um, and that there's value in addressing what's going on internally as well as what's going on externally. Right. So I think um, that brings us back again to sort of this issue of, um, you know, collaboration. Um, And I know... Uh, I've read in a couple of your your publications, as as well as from my own experience, that um, OTs often have a really hard time uh, getting certain BCBAs to really take them seriously um, mm-hmm. and to consider their point of view. And I know you mentioned in one of your things that OTs are the profession that they're least likely to listen to. Um, yeah, isn't that and, interesting? <laughs> yeah, and it's like, okay. Um, and so, you know, why don't we talk just a little bit about some of the barriers to collaboration um, and some of the things that you've run into. I mean, we've talked about a few things, but I think there's some additional things we need to talk about. And, you know, are there, um, and we've talked about a few strategies to kind of help in communicating with um, behaviorists and um gaining their support and buy-in into what we do. But I'm wondering if we can go into a little more depth into some of those kinds of strategies and, and barriers. Sure. Um, and actually, to, to comment on, on um, what you brought up, that, that OTs tend to be the least likely person that the BCBA will listen to, that actually comes out of a survey of behavior analysts wow. that were asked to report on um, who they're most likely to take recommendations from and implement recommendations. Um, And so that's very revealing to the types of relationships that are occurring between OTs and BCBAs. Um, Again, in my experience, um, BCBAs um, tend to see OTs as not being very data-driven in their practices Mm -hmm. and um, talking about all this sensory stuff, which isn't real meaningful for them. Um, It's not something that they have a background in or understanding about. And um, so I think for them it's easier to not investigate that than it is to consider the possibility of it being valid. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a couple things that I think are key strategies that, that can be really helpful for OTs. And um, one is to be much, much better at using data. Um, And I think that, you know, we hear this all the time, but I think there's a lot of reluctance in the field to develop the skills that it takes to be efficient with collecting good data and being able to present good data. Um, But I do think that with this particular um, team member, it's kind of like um, speaking their love language. Right. Um, if you can talk data, then you can have a good conversation with the BCBA. Um, so I think for OTs, where, that, where that's really instructive is two places. And one is in writing our goals and, and writing goals that really have functional, measurable outcomes um, and things that can be counted. 
And it doesn't mean that every single one of our goals has to be written that way, um, but at least some of our goals so that we can collect real um, quantitative data on and be able to have conversations about how we're seeing change occur as a result of our interventions. Mm -hmm. um, and within the BCBA world, um, most data is graphed and, and they're able to present um, change visually. And so that's another skill that I think OTs could get much better at doing um, and being able to come to team meetings with their graphs of of their clients' progress. And, and mm -hmm. I think that that helps not only the BCBA, but also everybody else on the team can see the value of OT when we can, can present it visually. Um, so I think our goals, writing our goals well, being able to collect data, graph the data, and then discuss the data is also really important. Um, and then I think this, this area of sensory processing and sensory integration, if we can help BCBAs begin to understand how sensation influences them in their own lives at a personal level, I think they're more willing to consider the way it influences the clients that they're working with. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for most of us as practicing OTs, that was something that we had available to us when we were learning about the theory. You know, we maybe did a sensory profile on ourselves or some other sort of self-analysis of the way we respond to different types of sensation. Um, and if we can enter into those sorts of, of learning experiences with the BCBA colleagues that we have and help them understand how their own sensory processing patterns influence their behavior, um, that can create a wonderful foundation for lots of, of really strategic conversations. Um, and I think it's, it's worth the effort that it takes. Um, one of the things I was wondering about, and I, I can't say that I've had uh, any experience one way or the other with this, but I thought you might. Um, BCBAs can come from a real wide variety of backgrounds, um, from someone with an OT background to, uh, you know, an educator to a psychologist. You know, it can be kind of a pretty wide um, range. You don't have to have a real specific background to get a BCBA training. Um, mm -hmm. Have you found that uh, certain, whether certain backgrounds are more likely to be open to hearing what we have to say versus professionals with other backgrounds? Hmm. That's a great but, question. Um, I don't. I don't feel like I have enough breadth of experience to, to be able to really um, make any conclusions about that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was just curious, wondering yeah. whether, you know, someone perhaps with, um, you know, an education background, because very often they are, you know, they're, they're teachers or, you know, yeah. working towards a teaching degree versus perhaps a psychology, you know, a, a psychology major. Mm -hmm. um, you know. What I have seen um, is people who have been out in the field in some capacity mm -hmm. rather than just having gone straight through school. So if somebody's been, you know, in a preschool, even as an aide or something, um, okay. but then becomes a BCBA, they tend to be more open to um, partnering with OTs than somebody who's gone just straight through school without having any practical experience. Yeah, that makes sense because they've probably seen more. 
Yeah. Um, one of the other things I thought was really interesting, which I didn't did not realize, is um, that uh, up until very very recently, it sounds like there's really been no training or mandate for training of any sort with BCBAs around collaboration. So mm-hmm. that I mean, they're they're not sort of trained up to be collaborative professionals. That's just not been part of their training. And that was something mm-hmm. I found really interesting um, and I, I didn't know about. And I think that, that, that speaks to some of the mindset um, that we might run into that, well, I know best and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, this is my thing and I'm going to do it my way. And, Absolutely. You know, as opposed to, you know, OTs are always <laughs> – we're all about collaboration and making everything work with everybody. Right. right. Um, and that's, I wonder if very you had true. any other thoughts about that. Um, you, you, no, I, th- I think that you, you expressed it really well. Um, there is no um, requirement, to my knowledge, of of the academic preparation programs for BCBAs to address the area of collaboration. Um, what I find really interesting is, um, well, one, the way that then plays out um, in practice, especially in the area of autism, where um, we know that a team approach is better than any one individual intervention approach, um, and that you know that's recommended in all of the the guidelines uh, and practice parameters that are out. Um, so, in that way, I think that the BCBAs are somewhat at a disadvantage in not having any preparation in that area. Another thing I find really interesting is that. Um, in very, very recent literature, there, um, BCBA literature, there's beginning to be a conversation around the need to learn how to collaborate. Mm-hmm. And so it appears that as a profession, there's the beginnings of some recognition around um, the importance of collaboration and the lack of preparation within the, their field to right. be good collaborators. So I'm hopeful um, that that's setting the stage for for some change to occur, and and that we can have better collaborative relationships in the future. Yeah, that's. It sounds like maybe some of the newer um, uh, therapists coming through the training might have a little bit different perspective than some of the previous ones. Um, I'm one hopeful. of the other, yeah, one of the other things that I I was reading about that I thought was really interesting, which. I mean, I guess I sort of knew at some point, but not quite to the level that it, it was, is um, this mandate that they have, um, and I guess it, it sounds like it's very much drilled into them about using evidence-based interventions. Um, that is, is part of the, what is it, well, their national or whatever you want to call it, um, their certifying agency's mandate to to use um, evidence-based um, interventions and that, you know, they're really taught to constantly be assessing whether or not the intervention they're doing is evidence-based. And and it, it kind of gave me some perspective on why they're always sticking their nose in our business, <laughs> <laughs> so to speak, because although they're not mandated to be um, evaluating other per- interventions, it sounds like that initial mandate has really sort of spread to, 
well, we need to evaluate anything that's involving this child. And mm-hmm. that's where, because I've, I've often always felt like, well, where do these people get off feeling like they can critique our our intervention? We don't sit there and critique your intervention, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. You, you would never see an OT doing a literature review on ABA, you know. And mm-hmm. when I read that, I was like, oh, right, okay. Mm-hmm. That it just gave me a really different perspective on sort of where they're kind of coming from or potentially coming from. Right, and the uh, um, let's see the the BACB, which is the the board that credentials a uh, behavior yeah. analyst, um, has a code that every BCBA adheres to, and within that code, they are mandated to only use evidence-based practices. Right. Um, and um, in the BCBA colleagues that I have, um, in conversations that we've had on this topic, they have expressed to me how some, some BCBA practitioners have extended that mandate to be all of the interventions that their clients are receiving should be evidence-based. And they feel that that then gives them license to make judgments around mm-hmm. other interventions that a family has chosen to pursue. Um, and certainly that can feel like, um, you know, people are, are treading on our territory or, um, you know, stepping on toes as they make judgments about our work. Something that's a, a, another important piece to remember is that um, the, the ABA or the behavior analyst definition of evidence-based is somewhat different than ours. And they use a different set of criteria to determine whether something is evidence-based. Um, they also tend to conduct their research using very different methodology than we do. And so when they're critiquing our work, um, they may not necessarily have a strong background in the type of, of methodologies that they're critiquing, um, which I think is, is something to be aware of. Um, the, the ABA profession is really built on single-case design research, um, which when you think about the theory of intervention that they apply, it makes sense that their work would be very, very individualized. Thus, their research needs to be based on small n single-case studies. Um, and so essentially what's happened in their field is there has been lots of replication of single case designs where the same intervention has been applied to the same behavior across different people. And they've built this body of evidence around using that intervention for that behavior. Um, But they don't have the large group studies that OT typically pursues when we do our research. Um, And so in some ways, the comparison isn't necessarily equivalent to look at their evidence and compared to our evidence because it's a whole different type of work. Um, and the, the way the evidence grows in these two different types of, of research is very different. And I don't know that BCBAs necessarily realize that or recognize that either. So yes, you're right, Teresa. Everything that we can learn about the way they think and the type of preparation that they've had is so instructive, and it's so helpful for us to to better understand why they make the decisions they make and why they do the types of work that they do. Um, and I think as we understand more of that, we become better collaborators. Yeah, I think that that really helps us, um, as you, we mentioned earlier, kind of speak their language better. 
Um, one of the other things I, I did want to address, because I know for myself I've I've gotten this kind of feedback from my own clients, and I, I know it's it's really influenced um, the way I often have thought about um, behavioral programs. And I used I did ABA training as a as a student, you know, um, mm-hmm. and thought it was the cat's meow at the time. It was like, oh wow, look what we can do to like stop these kids from hitting themselves, you know, um, or whatever. And it wasn't really until later on that I sort of learn more about it. But um, I think as OTs, especially OTs working with uh, SI, uh, I think we have a a really hard time, and I'm interested in your your thoughts about how we um, can reconcile um, many of the first-person accounts um, that we get um, from clients, especially those who are now adults, um, who have received ABA, um, when and I'm talking primarily, let me be clear, discrete trial training, um, mm-hmm. when they were younger, and really report a lot of the negative feelings um, that they've associated with that programming. I mean, one of my clients who's 57 years old now, um, you know, he says, I, I'm not a dog to be trained, and I don't need to be behaviored. And, you know, his perspective is, is one I've heard more than once. Um, mm-hmm. from individuals and, you know, wondering how we as, as OTs who really try to value what the client has to say, how we can, can kind of reconcile that, uh, some of that, that feedback that we're hearing in spite of some of the positive behaviors perhaps that have come out of this. I mean, do you have any thoughts? And it's, it's something I think we all struggle with. Yeah, gosh, you know, um, as I hear you describe that, I I do have a few of my own clients that come to mind. Um, I am so appreciative when our clients are able to um, have that self-expression and also have the self-reflection and be able to identify what is a good fit for them and what isn't a good fit for them. Um, I wish that that were possible for more of our younger clients. who are, you know, really oftentimes assigned to these programs because that's what an administrator or a policymaker has deemed is appropriate because of a, of a diagnostic condition. Right. I feel like our, our clients are really at a, a tremendous disadvantage by these policies that have been adopted um, because they, they don't have their own voice yet to be able to advocate for what they want as, a, as an intervention. And um, often- this is being done nowadays 30, 40 hours, 20, 30, 40 hours a week with mm-hmm. two and three-year-olds Yeah, who have yeah. no voice whatsoever um, in what the, what, what's going on. So yeah. I'm sorry I interrupted you. <laughs> no, that, that's okay. It's a tough one because I think that, um, you know, the world of, of advocacy is really the place where this is best addressed. Um, and for OTs, I think it's difficult to move into that realm of advocacy a lot of times um, because it takes us away from our clinical work or it requires that we're putting in extra hours some, somewhere. Um, and so I think there's a lot of us that don't, don't go there. Um, but I think when we do have a client who is able to express that um, 
you know, I think validating that is definitely step one. I think that our philosophy of the therapeutic relationship and having that therapeutic use of self be a, a key part of what happens in an OT intervention session um, can create a safe place for, for clients to share this sort of feeling with us. Um, and certainly we would want to then come alongside and, and validate that that feeling and that experience and um, help that person move forward into um, a therapy approach that is a better fit for them. Um, and if, you know, if OT, particularly with an SI approach, is a better fit, then let's maximize that and get everything we can out of it for that client, um, encouraging them to continue providing feedback for us and really partnering with us in the intervention planning. Um, and I think, you know, it would be wonderful if we could start writing up some of these cases where where clients are expressing this concern or this reflection on a previous intervention experience and then their their current experience with a different intervention approach, hopefully an OT approach, um, and help to expand the literature and the awareness of how people receiving these various interventions are, are feeling about them. That's a really good point. I think that would be really interesting, um, especially now that we're getting so many more um, older adolescents, young adults, older adults on the spectrum who've now been through this. Um, there you go. Anybody who's out there, this would be a really fantastic doctoral dissertation. Yes, it would. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I, I wanted to kind of related with this is um, – this this idea of um, especially within an SI framework, um, how can some of these behavioral strategies? And let's not talk the street the street trial. I think you gave us some really great specific strategies that are very appropriate for us to incorporate into our intervention. Um, how how can those fit within our OT practice framework and our scope of practice? And um, kind of also related with this, another issue um, that uh, you mentioned and uh, in some of your work and, and that I've seen as well is, um, is the scope of practice potential issue, especially around skill performance, such as things like uh, ADLs and mm -hmm. such, where um, both OTs have a vested interest, but behaviorists see it as being a behavioral task that they can train um, somebody mm -hmm. to do. Um, so I guess there's, there's sort of two-part question there. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, sure. And uh, I just wonder what your thoughts are around those. Sure. Yeah. So first of all, um, there there is a fair amount of overlap in scope of practice. Um, we all know that the OT scope of practice is very broad. Um, and the behavioral scope of practice um, in many ways is equally broad, really they will address any observable behavior. Um, and so that includes skill-based behaviors. Um, again, I think that we need to always be cognizant of the different mechanisms that we're working through. So the, the uh, behavior analyst is going to use a lot of um, external types of, of 
variables, changing the task itself, changing the environment, using different cues, um, different levels of reinforcement, things like that, in order to chain together the steps of the task. So if we're talking about dressing, you know, all of those different steps um, of the task are going to be explicitly taught and reinforced, and hopefully the, the overall skill will, will develop across time. Um, now in OT, we might do that as well where we're also doing some shaping or chaining and, and using whatever supports or scaffolding we need to use along the way. Um, but we might also be looking at the individual's regulation, their um, reactivity at any given moment in time, um, and, and using um, the relationship that we have with them in order to, to motivate and to encourage and to um, foster their engagement. So certainly this overlap in the skills that we're addressing um, can be challenging. Um, and I think what, what gets particularly difficult is when um, we're trying to address the skill at the same time that the behavior analyst is. And so then it kind of forces the issue of which method are we going to use? Because we know that if we're trying to teach a skill through a whole bunch of different methods, it's less likely for that skill to be learned than if we teach it through one method. Right. And um, in the conversations that I've, I've had with people using the behavioral approach, um, it seems to be that, that what works best for the team in that situation is to try one approach for a period of time, collect good data, um, if that approach is working, then continue with it. But if that approach isn't working, then switch to the other one. So maybe you start with the OT approach and collect good data, and if it's not working, then give the behavioral approach a try, collect good data, and see if it's working. Um, but I think always when we can use the data to help us drive our decision-making, um, then we have a good reason for choosing whichever intervention we do end up choosing to stick with. Um, scope of practice is tricky, and you know, there's going to be a lot of different innuendos that come up depending on who exactly is involved. Um, so I think there's guidelines that we can talk about for dealing with those issues, but a lot of times it's going to require um, a lot of patience and a lot of individual persistence in navigating those things. Well, and I um, think, so that's, too, one of the things I didn't realize is um, there uh, um, there's increasing licensure happening now with BCBAs, and so uh, AOTA is, is really conscious of, as usual, um, in protecting OT's scope of practice um, as new licensure guidelines uh, and licensure laws go into effect for different professions. And I know we're running into some of this with PT as well, but it's, it sounds like, you know, the BCBA uh, licensures are also another thing that we have to really, on a much larger professional level, uh, be cognizant of, of what's happening so that it doesn't limit our, our scope of practice. Absolutely, and we've dealt with that here in Washington State as well. And um, here's, you know, one of my kind of soapbox issues for anyone on the line is um, don't hesitate to get involved. Don't hesitate to write to your legislature or to show up at, at a hearing and um, speak up for OT um, to, to maintain our scope of practice because the, the threat is real. It's a really unfortunate, but it is real, and um, if we just – kind of stand by the wayside and watch, 
and rather than get in that um, the decision making process around those issues, then um, you know we can't really point the finger at anybody but ourselves. So I think that's a place where our advocacy becomes really, really important. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left, and the last thing I really wanted to cover um, was actually training for OTs. Um, you know, we've we've talked about how important being able to speak the language and and kind of being able to articulate what we're doing um, and within sort of a behavioral um, framework when when necessary. And so I wanted to give our listeners um, some resources. Um, what kind of training do you think is useful for OTs? Are there specific training um, resources that you know of? And are there other resources? Um, I know you have several, and I'll, I'll let you talk about those that I think are great. Um, but uh, what, what kinds of readings and, and such can we point people to? Right. Thanks for asking. Um, so there are a few things that I've I've published that might be you know good starting places for people because they were written for OTs. Um, so there's a chapter in the autism book. Um, there's a chapter in um, the occupational therapy for children book. There's a couple things in OT practice. Um, one from uh, just actually that just came out a couple of weeks ago about OTBCBA collaboration um, that can be helpful. What the two things actually that I think are the most helpful though, um, one is talking with your BCBA colleague, starting to ask questions. What are you doing? Um, what does it mean when you use that word? Um, I think if we can learn from the people that we're working with, um, that can be a really good um, way to learn things that are really relevant, um, but it also can help with building that collaborative relationship um, just by showing interest. Um, there's a toolkit available as well on the Autism Speaks um, website that goes through a lot of um, the ABA um, kind of the pieces of those programs and has a lot of the language and terminology in there. Um, so that's something that people could access. Um, and then finally, one of my go-to resources is a very old book. Um, the, it's called First Course in Applied Behavior Analysis, and it's by Paul Chance. And actually, my edition um, was published quite some time ago in the, in the 90s, um, but the information is still the same, um, and it goes through all the different terminology, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, shaping, chaining, um, and it's very, very reader-friendly. Um, so if it's something that is available through Amazon or um, I think even Barnes & Noble um, had it listed, so um, something else that people could look for if they were interested. All right, excellent. Well, Renee, thank you so much. I think this was really interesting and a lot of really um, excellent um, information. Um, I am going to ask if any of our listeners who are on the computer have any questions. Now's the good opportunity to um, type in any questions that you have. I'll give you a, just a, a short time here. Um, I have one person who's on the phone. Um, if you're on the phone, um, if you can mute your phone if you're not going to talk. Otherwise, I'm going to unmute you now and give you just a minute here to ask a question. And um, if you don't have anything to say, I'll just put you back on mute so we don't get background noise. So um, you're unmuted now, um, Southern California. <laughs> 
And uh, anybody else with any questions for Dr. Watling? Anybody? Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, quick question. Which autism book are you referring to? We're referring to Autism, a Comprehensive Occupational Therapy Approach. Um, and this is from, is it the third or fourth edition, Renee? What's the current it's one? The, it's the current one is the third, and it's through AOTA Press. Yeah, it's a big brown book. We all register books by their color. It's a big brown book. We do, the brown <laughs> one, yes. It's a great, uh, actually, it's a totally awesome autism reference in general. I, I completely recommend it for just general autism information as well. All right. Well, it doesn't look like we're going to get any more questions tonight. Um, so uh, our time's up now. Um, thank you very much for joining us, everyone. Um, watch our website and our mailing list for more details. Thank you very much, Dr. Watling. Um, I think this was really terrific information. Um, thank you, for our participants, for joining us for our live talk, um, Advances in Autism series. Uh, watch our website, www.thespiralfoundation.org, for our next live talk presentation and to obtain copies of past programs. And have a great evening. <laughs>